The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You may be seated. If you're in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please meet the volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. Thank you, Carrie. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hey, there you go. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside, and we are glad you're here with us, whether you're in person or online, uh, joining us as we go through the book of Mark together. Uh, well, it was about 11 years ago uh, that I was driving from Nashville uh, to Chattanooga, actually, and I heard on the radio uh, after I got a call from a friend that uh, the Titans, the NFL team in Nashville, the Tennessee Titans, my team, uh, had acquired one of the greatest receivers to ever play the game, Randy Moss. And I was ecstatic. And so we pull over to get gas at Mont Eagle, and I go in the gas station, and I fling the door open, and I yell, the Titans got Randy Moss. And I was met with, uh, who's Randy Moss? Uh, That's a small picture of what Jesus brings. He doesn't bring advice. He's not a good teacher. He brings news that's happened in real time. He brings news to his people, and that's what we see here in Mark. And we'll unpack it in these few verses. Uh, the setting of Mark and of the Gospels is that there's the Bible, and it's um, two main divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In between those two testaments is a, uh, a period called the intertestamental period. And it's 400 years, and it's silence. God doesn't speak. By all means, it seems like God is absent. And they think Mark is the first gospel written. And so the first chapter of the first gospel written, after 400 years of silence, Mark shows us that the first day on the job for Jesus, he talks about something. He talks about the kingdom. And it's a common theme, and actually I would contend it's what the whole entire Bible is about because it's on the first page and the last page, and it shows the beauty of it every page in between. And so here we'll see Jesus and the kingdom he brings. That's why we called this sermon series an upside-down kingdom because we'll look at the King Jesus and we'll look at the kingdom he brings and see how sometimes it's actually inverted. It doesn't meet our expectations and how beautiful it is. And so this morning we'll cover three things. Uh, We'll look at uh, what he brings, what he asks, and what he gives uh, as we look at Mark 1 this morning. But would you join me in prayer as we uh, do so? Let's pray. 
Lord, as we just sang, we are children of your mercy, rescued for your glory. And so this very moment, we ask, King of heaven, come. Meet us where we are. You say you know us. You say you're for us. You say you love us. Would you show and make those promises real to us this day as we each, Lord, come with our different joys and struggles and burdens and hopes and fears? Would you meet us this very moment, we pray, Holy Spirit, King of heaven, come down. Let your glory reign. We pray, Christ, that you this very day would disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed as we trust in you, as we see you as the King. We pray, Christ, in your name. Amen. Uh, So first, uh, we see in this passage uh, what he brings, what Jesus brings. If I said to you, uh, what is Christianese, you would probably come up with a list of terms that uh, are said often, that Christians use often, and it's like any uh, ingredient when you're cooking, like butter and sugar. If you just inject those words into something, it'll be better, right? It'll solve any problem. So when you're talking or you're praying, you're thinking, I just need to throw and sprinkle in some Christianese words. And sometimes it's really helpful and good in, in, in talking and distinguishing and articulating. And sometimes those words are said so often, we just feel like we just lose the meaning of it. Uh, that they're, they're just kind of lofty, fluffy words that are just thrown out. And we don't really know what we're even saying, but we know that they're good words. Christianese. Probably at the top of the list of Christianese are two words, gospel and kingdom. And they're both in this chapter. They're both in this passage. And so we need to kind of understand a base level of what those words are saying to us. Gospel and kingdom. So uh, what is gospel? Again, it's a fluffy word. It's a word that we say often. What is the gospel? The Greek is the is euangelion. You, good. And um, galion, um, news. It's good news. Uh, the gospel is not advice. It's not just a way of thinking. It's not just this um, kind of opioid of the people. It's good news because it tells us something about who Jesus is. But in ancient times, it wasn't a religious word like it is now. It was actually a word used often by everyone in the world. One example of it is that in the time as Mark Mark is writing, uh, there is something called the Gospel of Caesar Augustus, the good news of Caesar Augustus. And it told um, about how Caesar was born and how he came to power and how he was king and how he ruled and how he conquered and won battles. It was all about this news about Caesar Augustus. And and also in ancient times, um, with that thought in mind, uh, these kings would go to battle and they would win and they would be victorious and they would uh, conquer their enemies. And so they would send these messengers in their kingdom after victory and send them out to every part of the kingdom and say, tell them we've won. And so these messengers, these heralds, would go and, and, and bring this euangelion, this gospel, this good news about we won, we're victorious. The king has won, and guess what? We're safe. We get to live and be grateful that the king has won, and we're good. We belong to him. His victory is our victory. Tim Keller puts it this way. The gospel is something that has, uh, has happened in history, 
something's been done for you that changes your status forever. Happened in history, done for you, changes your status forever. The gospel has come. It's the good news. It's not advice. It changes our status forever. So how do we see this um, play out? Because it can feel like, okay, Jesus just kind of shows up. It's like the first hundred days in office where you want to get clear what you're up to and what you're going to do. It seems like Jesus kind of just throws out this Christianese word. And actually, it's far more deep and, and traced back than that. Because the euangelion, the good news of the gospel, uh, is, is actually on the first page of the Bible. That sin enters the world, and Adam and Eve say, actually, God, we think we are better kings and queens than you are. Therefore, in sin enters the world. And yet we see that uh, there's hope. Because in Genesis 3, where sin takes place, before God even talks to Adam and Eve about the consequences of sin, God declares something that will happen, and it's the euangelion. People call it the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first good news. It's, it's in, in God's uh, talk and, and verdict against Satan, against the serpent. And it says this in, in Genesis 3.15. Cursed are you, talking to the serpent, God says, Cursed are you above all livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What is he saying? Right when evil and sin enters the world, God says, from the get-go, it's not going to win. I'm going to take it so serious, and it's so serious that I'm going to tell you right now, this is not how the story ends. Hint, he will crush your head, serpent, and you're going to strike his heel. The verdict is in, uh, Satan, the serpent's on borrowed time already because the proto-euangelion, the first good news has come in. So when Jesus comes and he says, boom, guess what? Guess what I'm about? First day in office. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, remember that Genesis 3 promise? It's about me. Remember that good news that right when sin entered the world, right when it got real bad and it all hit the fan, there was that promise? Yeah, it's me. I'm here. I'm bringing the gospel of God to you, the good news. The victorious king is here, and that's what Jesus wants his people to know across all time and all history. Mark is writing to a people who, um, it's written again, first gospel written uh, in the mid-60s uh, AD, so like a long time ago. And he's writing, in the, uh, he's writing to Christians, and um, particularly Christians in Rome, and Christians in Rome at that time um, was not an ideal uh, place to be. Uh, Nero was the king of Rome. And this was the kind of king that the things you hear about. Christians are put in the Colosseum and eaten. They're put on uh, sticks and lit on fire for his dinner parties. They're being persecuted by a king. And so Mark is saying, guess what? 
the euangelion of your king is here. Uh, every curse, every bit of sin will be reversed because your king is here. And that's what he's trying to say. And also, that's what we're trying to understand. And the good news we receive in 2021, not just 60 AD. It's not advice. It's not a way of thinking that distracts or, or you know, exhumes us from our place. It's good uh, news. The little town of Bethlehem, the Christmas song, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. That's what this king is. He's come proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the gospel? It's good news. What's the kingdom? It's about King Jesus reigning over all things. You don't have to be a Christian, though, all that long to understand, okay, this is the truth of the Bible. This is what Jesus says about himself. Sure. And then look into your life and realize quickly there's enough wrong, enough hard things that I didn't plan for that I feel a tension. Jesus, you talk about being a king and you talk about truth. And you talk about bringing your kingdom at hand, your gospel, your good news. You win, you're victorious. But it doesn't feel that way at all. It feels like I'm losing, actually. That we try to maybe raise our kids a certain way and it just doesn't take. That we try to kick an addiction and it just keeps on having our number. There's, there's hardships, there's, there's um, pain, there's anxieties, there's death. Planes fly into buildings. Friends are shot when, when the 3 p.m. on a Friday. How do you make sense of tension like that? The first words of verse 14 give us an idea. Now, after John was arrested. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the good news, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. John's in jail, and yet his cousin Jesus is saying, guess what, I'm the guy, I'm the king, I'm here. And meanwhile, John's in jail. John's one job was to uh, prepare the way for Jesus to come. So you can probably understand for John to be in jail, he's probably thinking, all right, well, good for you out there, I'm here. I'm glad that the king is um, on his campaign of victory out there, but it doesn't seem that way where I am right now. His one job was to prepare the way for Jesus, and he's, his cousin, uh, he's the cousin of Jesus. And you can probably think that John thought, I didn't sign up for this. And you're right. There's a, there's a point in, in Luke 7 where John is in jail, Herod has thrown him into jail for um, confronting Herod. And Herod throws him into jail. And in Luke 7, we see a picture where John asks for Jesus to relieve the tension. And here's what it says. You can see behind me. Starting in verse 18 of Luke 7. John's disciples told him about these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many diseases, many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. He replied to the messengers, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What do you, uh, why, sorry, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me, before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It was long, I know. John's asking, Jesus, relieve this tension and answer my question. Are you the one to come? And Jesus reminds him of two important parts of what he brings, the type of kingdom he brings. He brings a kingdom of victory. He's saying, John, the lame will walk, the blind will see. And guess what? The, the poor, they're not going to get stuff. It's hard to get good news when you, you feel poor. The poor get good news. Everything he's telling John, the messengers of John, to tell John, is saying, guess what? I'm victorious over the mess of all of our lives. The way sin has assaulted each and every one of us, I'm going to reverse that. That Jesus is on this campaign as a king of cosmic renewal, including the aches and pains of your very story. He's a victorious God. I've had a surgery on this knee and not much cartilage. I've got torn cartilage in this knee. I, I would like to change. I have all but grills in my mouth from all the uh, dental procedures I've had done. I would like that to change. I have dots on my chest from radiation where the machine would line me up. I would like those to be gone too. There are ways in which the cosmic renewal of the king is going to fix everything in the world, like out there, ethereal. And guess what? It includes you and it includes your story. The king wins. And guess what? When you feel this tension, yeah, Jesus is your king, but what about this? What does Jesus say to you? You, when you ask him, are you the one to come? Or shall I wait for somebody else? Because he says something to you because he's come as a king for you. He comes in victory, but also it's important to note here in that little passage of Luke 7, he also brings a kingdom of validation. It's nice to know that Jesus wins in the end, and yeah, we win in the end, but he actually says a word specifically to John and to us. He says, Yes, you win, but also you're the greatest person born of woman. One of the, I don't know how much of a better compliment you could get other than like you're the greatest person to ever be born. And then he says, and guess what? If you're, if you're least in the kingdom that I bring, you're better than him. Jesus brings validation and dignity because he's not perturbed by our questions. 
Jesus is not perturbed by you asking, are you, are you the one to come? Or should we wait for somebody else? Because it doesn't seem like you're the one. Help me relieve this tension. He brings validation to who you are. And so the question I have is, uh, what does the king say to you? A validating word, because however you answer that, it will show what kind of kingdom he brings. And when you see the kingdom that he brings, if it's not all that appealing and validating and dignifying, it's not that fun to be part of. He brings victory to free us and restore us. He's powerful. He reverses sin and he brings validation. That's what his kingdom's about. That's what he brings. But, but next we also see what he asks. What Jesus asks of us. There's a call of Jesus in these coming verses that we'll look at. And he's inviting us to leave our kingdoms to join his kingdom. To leave us, our role as kings, to join him as a, a king. Because he knows we love the fact that we get to be kings and queens of our own kingdoms. Why? It's because we love our own gospel. We, as kings and queens, love to hear, as we're on the throne, our own gospel, our own good news. The word that says to us, you are amazing. You are the good news. You are victorious as we sit and hear things spoken to us. Right, you can think this, this word of pride and, and this word of, of inflammation and it puffs up and it whispers comfort to you as you're um, superior as your own king. And it also can be maybe a voice, uh, um, a gospel of inferiority where it's a, a voice that says, you will always be this way. You'll always be uh, riddled by shame and guilt. Both are indicting words because both solidify us as the kings and queens of our own kingdom. And Jesus' call is deep. He says, leave that. Leave your own gospel. Because oftentimes, our own gospel, the words that are spoken to us as we are kings and queens of our own worlds, is simply an overcorrection of the voices that we don't want to be true. For me, I hear the voice, especially when I leave today, you slayed it. They love you. That's the voice, that's the euangelion, the gospel I hear of my kingdom that solidifies me on the throne. Because that voice overcorrects the voice of your stupidity has made you invalid. What is the voice that you hear that solidifies you on the throne that is an overcorrection of something you don't want to be true? That you long not to be true. And Jesus invites us to say, leave that for me. He says, um, well, it's important to point out that we have to leave that. We have to leave that competing voice, that competing gospel, because his gospel and our gospel won't match. Two kings, one throne, doesn't work. Two kingdoms, doesn't work. In the office, of the show, Jim is a salesman who's quirky and funny and um, fun, and he gets elevated, promoted to be co-manager with Michael Scott. 
And we see uh, that the accountant, the shrewd, astute accountant Oscar is asked, what do you think about this? And he answers, look, it doesn't take a genius to know that any organization thrives when it has two leaders. Go ahead. And then a country that doesn't have two presidents, a boat that doesn't set sail without two captains. Where would Catholicism be without the popes? And, sorry. Uh, tongue in cheek, all to say, two kings, two rulers, one kingdom, it doesn't work. One throne, one king. We have to leave our kingdom and join him. And he says specifically, explicitly, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, a Christianese word again. But it's reminding us and saying, turn around, change. But, but not just on the surface or behavior modification. It's saying, repent, change at your core. What's at our core? Our kingdoms. Leave that kingdom behind that we have and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news that the king brings, that he's victorious and he's validating and he's for you. Repent and believe is what he asks us. And we see it played out in real time, this kind of case study at the very end of our passage this morning. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee in verse 16, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. Simon, Andrew, James, John, he asked those guys, Leave what you're doing, your vocation, your family, join me. And they do it. And they do it. It's wild because at that time, teachers wouldn't, um, rabbis wouldn't um, ask the pupils to join them. It would be reversed. The pupils would go and say, please let me study under you. And yet Jesus calls these people and they come. The call on Jesus and those he loves and desires is responded with um, obedience. And they call and become his disciples. And here we see two important little vignettes of discipleship. He asks us to repent and to believe in the gospel. And here we see uh, two things. We see uh, in discipleship, we have to leave something behind for Jesus. We leave something behind to follow him. Now, in ancient, more collective culture, there were fishermen and they had families. And here they leave both those things, their job and their father. Um, they would, you know, they wouldn't, they would never fish again. That's not true. And they would see their father again. But Jesus is saying, leave those things behind. And in our maybe more modern individualistic culture, we may have no problem saying goodbye to family and certainly no problem saying goodbye to a job. And yet the call to repent and believe in a gospel may look different like maybe change the way you view financial security. Or maybe change a, a sexual ethic that you think gives you life. Or maybe stop trying to keep up with the Jones and social status 
and be content. Does Jesus hate those things? No. Does Jesus want you to hate those things? No. Does Jesus call as king for you to have a comparative love that is greater than those things? Yes. A supreme love? Yes. He invites us to leave things to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, someone who lost his life for the sake of the gospel in Nazi Germany, put it as this, as costly grace. And he says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of the of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for those for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. He bought with a price. And that which, um, and what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God is inviting us to a life of costly grace where we leave the securities, the creature comforts behind for him. And the beautiful thing is that he doesn't waste our sacrifice. We leave behind for him. He never throws away or discards that sacrifice. But he only emphasizes our dignity more and more as we're forming and being shaped. So what is the call in your life of costly grace that you come across the king and he calls you to follow him? And he's saying, leave this behind and join me. We see that in discipleship, we have to follow Jesus and leave something behind. But also in discipleship, as we follow him as a disciple, just as these guys were disciples, in discipleship, we're on a journey of becoming. He asks these fishermen to join him. He's a carpenter who's turned into an itinerant preacher. And he's saying to them, hey, y'all come, follow me. And they just do it. There was no Q&A session of, hey, what are you about? Uh, what's in it for me? Uh, what do I get? They just did it. There wasn't a question and answer time of making sure the cost to benefit ratio worked out well. But Jesus said and gave them the promise, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Following Jesus will make you into something. In discipleship, we're always becoming something because Jesus' view of us and trajectory of who we could become is always greater than we can in and of ourselves. And he invites us on this journey of becoming and following him and learning what he loves so we can love it. Looking at our lives and the hardship and having um, a thirst of having it reconciled. And he says, join me, follow me. It's not an instantaneous thing, but it's learning more and more in discipleship, 
of responding to the call of King Jesus on each and every one of our lives daily. It's a hard, tall call. Eugene Peterson said this, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. The same Jesus who says, leave your nets behind, leave your kingdoms behind, repent, turn around, is also the same God who says, I'm going to make you into something so amazing. I'm not going to waste the things that you leave behind for me. Costly grace that leaves things behind for him because we're becoming something. What are we becoming? Fishers of men. And it's not this phrase that he uses like it's um, kind of, Cheeky, like, uh, oh, they're fishermen, so I'm calling fishers of men. Right? You're an accountant, so you're going to account for the souls. Uh, it's, that's, it's not like that. In the Bible, the sea is always this place of chaos. It's this imagery and this idea used that it's chaotic, and you can't predict it, and, and, and actually it's going to take you over. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I'm going to make you into fishers of men. And just like I've plucked you out of the sea and brought you into my kingdom, what you're going to do is go to the seas, go to your individual places, and help others being plucked out of the chaos of their lives. And they're not going to follow you because you're not the Savior. They're going to follow me because I'm the King. Jesus actually wants you to be with him and join him on his mission of taking the places that are chaotic and the people that are in the places of chaos and to join him in the places of peace and of life as we walk the road of discipleship all together. He invites us to join him on that mission. He's inviting four guys right here on that mission. And guess what? For a few years, they're not going to get it at all. They're going to ask him the stupidest questions. They're going to wonder... What's in it for them? They're going to try to be the greatest and get all these eternal benefits. And then they're going to leave the person that calls them to die alone. These people are going to fail Jesus. And guess what? Jesus still calls them right now in this chapter, and he knows that's going to happen. And yet after the resurrection, uh, they encounter these guys who abandon Jesus, encounter Jesus, and will die for him years later. Dietrich Bonhoeffer will die for Jesus years later because grace is costly. And when we see the victory of the king, we follow him because he has called us and included us on his mission. And he says, join me and also pluck people out and throw them in my wake of redemption. What he asks of us, follow him. Leave our kingdoms, join his kingdom. Leave what we will lose and join what we will never have plucked from us. And lastly and shortly, what he gives us. What Jesus gives us. We've talked about um, the tension that John felt in prison. Um, right? He's in prison and then he hears this good news that Jesus is bringing about the king and he's still in prison. Those first couple words of verse 14 said, Now after John was arrested... 
The Greek word arrested there is uh, paradothenai. And it's also translated uh, delivered up and, and taken into custody of. The one time that exact word is used in the Bible is in Luke 24. And in Luke 24, there are these women in front of Jesus' empty tomb, and these angels come, and they bring them a gospel. Remember, what's a gospel? It's, it's something that's happened in history, that's uh, something that's been done for you, and that changes our status forever. These angels bring this news, this good news, to the women who are looking for Jesus and find an empty tomb, and they say this in Luke 24. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember, he told you while you were still, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over, arrested, put in custody of. Paradothenai. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Same word, two places it's used. John is suffering in prison. Isn't it good news that the Savior and the King of all things suffers the same thing? Put in the custody of sinners who he will save. Die for them. And where that word is used, the arrested word, the, the put in custody of word, is actually the exact moment the king is coronated, has a crown of thorns, a cross that's not his. His coronation as king shows us something what his kingdom is about. It's about you and I. The reason this king is coronated where he is is because he has you and I in mind. That he's come to rescue us and to show you that his kingship and his kingdom that involves you won't crush you because he's been crushed for you. The king has come for you. What does he give us? He gives us freedom. He's come for us. doesn't crush us. He was crushed for us. And because of that, we don't have to wonder. We're free to not wonder what he thinks about us or what it will do to us. We're free to know he came for us and he calls us to follow him and give us things we could never have in our own kingdoms. Let's pray. Lord, you had a crown of thorns and, and a cross that wasn't yours. And you took it all on for us. Overcame it all for us. And this is because you as a king saw it fit that your kingship would eternally involve us. And so King of Heaven, come down, show us that you are ours and we are yours and nothing can take us away. As we feel this tension, King Jesus, we ask you, meet us with a victory and meet us with validation that says to us, we are so loved and we are so safe because we know how the story ends. 
King Jesus, meet us this very day, we pray. Show us your kingdom as we look at your cross and walk towards it. We pray, Christ, in your name. Amen. Because we know how the story ends. King Jesus, meet us this very day, we pray. Show us your kingdom as we look at your cross and walk towards it. We pray, Christ, in your name. Amen.